Welcome to the So Lux Life Podcast, where our goal is to enhance the mental, physical, and spiritual luxuries in life. Make your life luxurious through knowledge, coaching, training, and technique. Visit us online at soulluxlife.com. Here's your host, Crispin J. Watson. Welcome to the Soul Looks Life Podcast. I'm your host, Krista J. Watson, and today I have Dr. Lars Johnson here with me. I'm so excited because he is such a professional. Um, he has a PhD in IO psychology from the University of Houston. He um, has a master's of education in educational administration at Lamar University and a BA in psychology from Tougaloo. He balances work with the best family anyone could ask for. He's married to the best woman that he ever met, and they have two handsome sons and a beautiful daughter. And you all, she is beautiful because I see her on social media all the time, and I'm all for little baby girls. So welcome, Lars. Tell us a little bit about you, like where you're from and how you got to where you are now. Just take us some like a journey through your life. Uh, okay. So um, I'm from Grenada, Mississippi. Um, Hometown, same as Crispin. So uh, I think they have gone to high school together for a year. Were you a freshman when I was a senior, or did you come in right after I left? Um, I graduated in '09, so I got there in like 2005. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you were, you were, you were gone. It was your sister. It was your sister uh, that was there when I was there. Then I think that's what it was. So yeah, so I graduated from Grenada in 2003. Um, I was actually born in Grenada, but I didn't stay in Grenada the entire time. I moved to uh, Ridgeland, Mississippi for a while, and then South Carolina. And then I lived in Texas for a little while, and then I moved back to Grenada when I was in high school. Um, interestingly enough, out of all the moving, um, in terms of childhood, I spent the majority of my life in Mississippi. So I tell people that I'm born and raised in Mississippi because that's where I spent the majority of my uh, childhood time. Um, I then went to Tougaloo College. I started off as an English major. Uh, my plan was to... Uh, become an attorney. My father's an attorney. Uh, one of my brothers is an attorney. And so the goal was for the front door of my father's office to say Johnson, Johnson, and Johnson, attorneys at law. Um, about halfway through my freshman year in college, I realized that I didn't want to be an attorney. And so um, unbeknownst to my father, I changed my major to psychology. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so he didn't find out until I graduated. Uh, the, really? <laughs> yeah, the good thing about college is they just see classes on your... Uh, <laughs> They don't know, you know, really what's going on. And so right. did all the psychology classes that I was taking, um, it can be psychology free law, you know, law is not a major. So uh, at the end of it, he was like, so when are you going to law school? And I'm like, I'm not. So I actually applied. Um, well, it was a weird that Princeton had this early identification program. And so uh, someone came, a recruiter came, I interviewed, uh, they offered me um a spot in the doctoral program at Princeton uh, when I was at Tougaloo, um, and it was a PhD in neuropsychology. And so it was a soft offer, you know, I still need to fill out all the formal paperwork, I still need to take the GRE, uh, but something inside of me said that, you know what, I probably really don't want to do that. Uh, and also an important point, um, I was nervous. You know, Tougaloo is an HBCU, um, mm -hmm. I had only been around black students, um, I had very little exposure to white people, at, at the point of my senior year, outside of a few classes here and there. And I recognized that socially, um, all I knew how to interact with was my people. And that's very different coming out of high school. And so I would be in an environment where a lot of the students there were well off. 
uh, far more well off than I. Uh, the students wouldn't look like me. And then I don't think I, I didn't think I was passionate about clinical psychology because neuropsych is a uh, variant of clinical psychology. And mm -hmm. so all put together, um, imposter syndrome set in. <laughs> Convinced myself that that's not the route that I needed to go. Uh, and fortunately, it wasn't because looking back, I'm glad I didn't go into clinical psych, whereas I love all my clinical friends. Um, it's not my cup of tea. And so I deferred uh, the offer for a year and I asked them, hey, can I take a gap year and then pursue that the following year? They said, sure, students do that all the time. And uh, in conversation with one of my faculty mentors, uh, Dr. Madhu Singh, uh, she's retired now. She was at Tougaloo. She uh, retired and moved back home to uh, New Delhi. Uh, she told me, hey, you know, you really want to be a professor. Uh, go to uh, go become a public school teacher and they'll teach you how to teach because if you become a professor. Uh, no one teaches you how to teach. And so that's what I did. Hence the master's in school administration. And so, oh, wow. so where did you teach it? So I taught uh, in Irving, Texas, right outside of Dallas. Mm -hmm. and it was interesting. One of my fraternity brothers, um, he was my Sunday school superintendent growing up. Uh, he pledged in 1969 at a five-side chapter at Langston University. And I had no idea that he was an Omega growing up. Um, he didn't bring it up a lot in church. Um, he was one of my mentors growing up. And then I came back to visit mom. Uh, my mom was living in the Dallas area. I came back to visit her. And he was like, oh, so you're frat now. Um, and it turns out all of those guys that I went to Sunday school with around my age, we all became Omegas. I don't know if something in the Kool-Aid or something in the something water. Something in the church. <laughs> the church <laughs> but, didn't need. But the majority of us, uh, if, if we went to college, we became Omegas. Uh, and he actually gave me my first job because he was a uh, public school principal. And so he gave me my first job. Um, and that's where it all started. And so I started working in the behavioral unit. And uh, we focused on behavior for students that were um, special education students and emotionally disturbed. Mm -hmm. uh, I taught all subjects uh, in middle school and all grades um, in a self-contained classroom. And it was a really interesting um, environment. You know, some days were really good days. Other days, kids were throwing chairs and oh, wow. <laughs> trying to get the building. Uh, <laughs> learned a lot of stuff about interacting with, uh, with kids between the ages of uh, 12 and 15. Um, and I, I did that for a year. Then I transferred to a comprehensive campus uh, where I focused on, uh, I taught geometry um, and algebra. I also co-taught algebra two and uh, pre-calculus. Um, I worked as an inclusion teacher in special education. And a uh, year after I started at that campus, I became the department chair of special education and transitioned into more of a leadership role. Uh, shortly after my master's in school administration, I started doing district training. Um, I worked with software companies to revise how we implemented uh, some federal law through special education policy. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. I did an internship there. Uh, and at the end of it all, I was trying to become a school principal and things just weren't working out uh, in that area. And it finally hit me, you know, God's telling me this isn't what the original path was. My original mm -hmm. path was a PhD to be a professor. And so uh, my wife, she was my uh, girlfriend at the time. She had gone off to grad school and we talked about it and we kind of came up with a strategy. I said, okay, you go to grad school first. Well, I went to grad school first. She went after me. I'm like, when you finish up, then I'll go back in. And so we timed it just right. And I was blessed enough to get into the University of Houston to pursue a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. And uh, that's what I did. So in the fall of 2012, um, I started the PhD program after working in education for five years. And it was the scariest time of my life because I went <laughs> being gainfully employed and having bills, adult bills. 
<laughs> quitting my job and moving to Houston, no job. My wife was fresh out of school. She graduated a week and a half before uh, my classes started. And uh, I saved all of my paychecks from that uh, the previous summer, which was $1,000 um, over the course of about three and a half months. I saved all of that uh, and we moved to Houston. And we prayed because <laughs> no one had a job, no one had any income. Uh, and we just figured it out. We just let God do what he was going to do. But I decided that, you know, um, it's more than just serendipity here. Um, I have to take the opportunities that are in front of me um, because if I ignore them, there's a good chance they may not come back again. And so uh, fortunately, it worked out. My wife found a job. Um, I started school. We were able to eat and pay bills. Uh, and yeah, we, we really started. We kind of feel like we really started our adult life at that point. That's so amazing and inspiring because so many people are scared to go out there and take that leap of faith. Some people are like, okay, I have to have a job set up before I go. But for you to actually go out there off the money you save, that's very inspiring. So you mentioned that you had a mentor. How important would you say mentorship is for someone that's trying to be successful and trying to reach the next level in life? So um, I'll, I'll give two pieces. I'll give a personal take on mentorship. And then I'll talk about, um, because in my field um, in IO psychology, we study things like mentorship and leadership, um, interpersonal relationships, mostly things that deal with work. And so I'll talk about it from that perspective as well. Uh, personal side of things, I believe that mentorship is important. Um, and I think that you have to be informed in how you choose your mentors. And so if you have certain goals uh, and you want your mentors to support you in those goals and kind of groom you and uh, help you figure out a path, it's important that you pick mentors that have done the things that you're trying to do. Hmm. And, uh, that's one of the things that I've always believed in doing, uh, picking people that have done the things that I want to do. It's kind of like uh, when you get relationship advice from someone who hasn't dated anybody in years. <laughs> right. It, it sounds great. It, it actually <laughs> But we know that relationships are really contextual. And so sometimes the things that we hear uh, and sometimes the things that we see are two very different things. And so it's the same thing with mentorship. So someone might have really great advice, but they might not understand the nuance or the context that's around certain situations. And they may not be able to fill in those little pieces uh, that you can't find through Google, um, those little pieces that only experience tells you. Right. Always tried to find those types of mentors. So while I was in education, uh, my mentor, Maurice Walker, uh, who's like a, you know, he's like a second dad to me. Uh, he had done all the things that I wanted to do. Um, he faced adversity in his path. Um, he was very outspoken. He was very vocal. Uh, he had a very strong passion for, uh, for young black men uh, and making sure that they, uh, one, um, got a proper education and two, um, that they understood authority and discipline. Uh, and in that standpoint for him was, I don't want you to exit into a world where you don't know how to interact with people. Uh, mm -hmm. and you don't know uh, just basic display rules. And that was really important because he said, you know, we're always being categorized and we're always uh, being stereotyped. And uh, he doesn't believe in the respectability politics, but he does believe uh, in self-governance. And so that was something that was really important. And so he instilled that in me um, growing up. I saw it when I was working with him and I'm really glad that I picked him as a mentor because he was doing the things that I wanted to do. He knew the path. Uh, I mean, just those tidbits, those nuggets of information, he was able to uh, share those things. On the more research side of things, more so in my field, all of that stuff applies. Uh, 
we also know um, about mentorship is that uh, you tend to need to actually like your mentor. (laughs) (laughs) That's not always the case. Sometimes we pick mentors because they have done things that, you know, we want to do, but we don't necessarily get along with that person. And it's difficult to adhere to advice from someone um, that interpersonally you don't care for. Uh, And so that's something to be aware of. Uh, Sometimes it's not the best thing to engage with a mentor or pick a mentor um, that's someone that you just can't get along with because, you know, you'll have to spend your time. You'll have to spend cognitive resources interacting with that person. And you'll likely end up devaluing the advice that they impart simply because um, you don't like the way that they said it or you don't like the way that they treat people. Or maybe you're saying things that are unethical. Maybe there's different values. Um, And so, Finding a mentor that you actually have a strong relationship with or is somebody that you can build a strong relationship with, create norms with, that's really important as well. Perfect. I love it. So as far as like success goes, and now we're supposed to be talking about, you know, the mindset for success. What do you feel like is one of the most important things a person can do to kind of get to that next level in life and achieve that level of success, whatever they deem? as success? Uh, that's a broad question. So I'll try to, uh, <laughs> I'll try to, to give a good answer for it. Um, right now, uh, a lot of my research is uh, focusing on uh, psychological empowerment. And, uh, you know, psychological empowerment has several components. Um, to me, some of the primary components, the uh, self-determination piece, um, and that's, belief, that's basically the belief that the behavior that you're engaged in uh, is of your own doing, of your own making. Um, and so it's more of this volitional thing. These are things that I want to do. Um, these aren't things that I'm being forced to do. Uh, meaning is important. That's another important aspect of psychological empowerment. And that's the work that you're doing um, holds some value to you. There's some intrinsic worth in whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, competence is important. That's the level of mastery that you've engaged in. And so if you want to reach some goal, uh, you have to engage in mastery behaviors. You have to learn your craft. Uh, and that's one of the hardest things for people to do. A lot of people want success. They want to put, you know, the uh, the carriage in front of the horse. They mm-hmm. want the person, they want the knowledge second. And that's just really not how this works. Um, and so confidence is a really important part of it. And it takes a lot of discipline. Uh, you know, in my field, uh, my wife, she always, she always uh, looks at me uh, when I'm working. It's a lot of reading. Uh, and she's like, I went into medicine because I didn't want to do all that reading. And she does her fair share of reading in medicine. Mm-hmm. So any given day, um, and just in terms of research articles, I might read five to 10 of those things. And that might be 150 to 200 pages of reading. And I'm doing this, you know, one for my own edification, uh, but two, so I can, you know, further my research. Uh, and these aren't things that anybody's standing over me telling me to do. So I seek out things to read in my field because I need to know, you know, how the field is changing, what's happening in the research. Um, I think about it quite often, uh, even when I'm not working, I'm not a workaholic, I'm far from that, but I do recognize that I need to devote a certain amount of time to learning, um, and staying up to date in what's going on in my field. And that's really important. That's that confidence piece as an impact. Can you make a difference? Um, I think that that tags along, um, well with, uh, the meaning piece of it, but can you actually change outcomes, change the way things are being done? Uh, and if you can do that, Um, I think that the work becomes far more meaningful to you. And so, you know, if you have those four components, um, 
those are folks who tend to be um, high in what we call psychological empowerment. And people who are higher in psychological empowerment tend to be highly motivated folks. Those are the folks that are always um, after, you know, that next milestone and whatever it is their long-term plan is. Um, the folks that struggle with milestones tend to be folks who are missing multiple pieces. And so you don't have to have all of that stuff to be successful or to be motivated. You know, you can have varying combinations. Sometimes you're engaging in work that's not intrinsically meaningful to you, but it's a means to an end. And you recognize that in order to get to my goal, this is something that I have to do. Um, sometimes, you know, self-determination isn't a huge part of it. Sometimes it's more road or more um, automatic. Somebody else is uh, telling you to do it. There's a routine involved. Sometimes that ends up happening. But if you can get at some of those pieces, at least recognize that, hey, what I'm doing impacts someone else. Um, and what I'm doing has a high degree of meaning. Maybe that may, that may be enough to push you forward. Uh, aside from that, uh, there's a lot of personality uh, traits and the reason that I bring up personality uh, is that most people don't really understand personality. Uh, personality isn't something that you have. Uh, personality is something that you do. Uh, personality is uh, behaviors that tend to kind of group together. And so when we talk about you know, personality broadly, we're talking about a person in terms of like a profile. And we tend to do um, a poor job of really describing people when we talk about broad personality. But there are certain traits that are strong traits that link to success, one being conscientiousness. Uh, people that tend to be conscientious are, you know, diligent, they're hardworking, they tend to be organized folks, uh, they tend to like structure, they're loyal, they're dependable, they're the people that you can count on uh, when you're in a crunch. Uh, there are people that you can count on uh, when work needs to get done, maybe in a short amount of time, or um, you need somebody detail-oriented to look at things. And you may recognize that, hey, I'm not a highly conscientious person. Just because innately you don't have a high level of a personality trait doesn't mean that you can't work on it. Uh, that's something that I have to work on. I'm not a highly conscientious person. Um, I was blessed with parents that pushed me when I was young. Uh, and learning often came easy to me. And then into uh, grad school and started pursuing a doctorate. Um, one, everyone was just as smart as I was. And so no one was smart. You know, in terms of the game, it was zero for everybody. The playing field was even. Right. <laughs> and there was, uh, because, you know, it was one of those situations where everyone was always the smartest one in their class. You know, it was a room full of people who could have been the valedictorian. You know, right. and, <laughs> so that was, that was getting a PhD. That's what it looked like. And that was across the entire program. And then, you know, at some points in your life, you know, you might have felt like, oh, I'm smarter than my teacher. Normally that's not true, but sometimes you feel <laughs> Right. You know, yeah, you know, well, not in your mom's class. We never felt like that. In, <laughs> not in Mr. Watson's class. We never felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> don't make a disclaimer now. <laughs> yeah, just throw a little disclaimer in, because I don't know, but I'm sure they are. Uh, but you know, sometimes you feel that way. But when you start a doctorate, no, that's not how that works. I mean, they these people look smart. You know, <laughs> so not only are you in a room full of peers that are just as smart as you, you have these uh, just momentous uh, backgrounds uh, in, in the field that you're in uh, that, are, that are teaching you. And it's always, can I keep up? You know, how can I, you know, how can I make this work? And so I recognized that quickly in grad school that I'm not the most conscientious person. So I had to work on conscientiousness. I had to work on structuring uh my behavior in a way that supported me getting this PhD. 
Uh, and that's something that's hard to do, but you can do it. You know, I started timing how much time I was spending um, writing. Uh, writing every day is important when you're working on a PhD. Uh, maybe it's something different from you or someone else. Maybe if you're in uh, it's marketing or in the fashion design, uh, you need to spend so much time reviewing the latest trends. Uh, and so I had to spend time thinking, I had to create a schedule for myself. You know, this is what I plan to get done across the day. And I had to stick to it and stop pushing things over to the next day, which is really easy to do. And sometimes you can't avoid that, but you know, I had to really focus on, all right, what's realistic for the day, what absolutely needs to happen, and what can be sacrificed. And I had to start looking at my day that way. I had to start looking at the things that I was doing for fun and trying to figure out, was I having too much fun? And mm -hmm. it was. Um, I think about how much TV I used to watch, and I realized it was ridiculous. I, you know, everyone has their shows. I had 13 shows. <laughs> <laughs> you have a count. <laughs> I had 13 shows uh, at one point, and I said to myself, I, I, can't, I can't spend 13 hours of my life, yeah. of my life on TV. That didn't include flipping the channels. You know, that didn't include catching sports here and there. You know, th these were my shows. These weren't <laughs> that my wife watched. Cartoons <laughs> with my kids. These were my shows. And, you know, with every show, I had a friend or two or more that watched that show as well. And we would talk about the show, talk about the episode. And so I'm like, okay, I got an hour for this show, <laughs> 15 or 20 minutes each week of just gabbing, talking about the show with my friends. <laughs> and that adds up. And so now I'm at about 20 hours a week that I've spent on my shows or something related to my shows. And I haven't even considered all the other time I spent watching TV with my kids and watching TV with my wife. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of time. Now, I'm not saying you can't enjoy yourself, but I recognized I didn't need 13 shows. And so I slowly started to remove shows. And the easiest way to get rid of a TV show is just don't watch the next season. Finish the current season. Just don't start the next season. Or you could do like me and just get, get, um, get cable turned off. So <laughs> there you have it. The cable was off. Hulu <laughs> and Netflix, they are eating it. They really I, know I got a fire stick now, so I don't miss anything. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, I had to start doing things. And, you know, part of being conscientious is recognizing the things that are getting in your way. And yes. And the environment. And from sabotaging that, behavior. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, there's this uh, framework called the uh, Job Demands Resources Framework. Uh, and it talks about all the things that are resources to the work that we want to do and all the things that impose demands. Uh, but along this uh, path, uh, they introduce this idea of self-undermining behaviors. And so you may be on the path to success, but there may be things that are undermining that success. And able to recognize those things and then remove them or minimize them um, is just as important as engaging in those success behaviors. Because if you're engaging in success behaviors, but you're ignoring the things that undermine your success, especially the things that you have control over, it's almost as if to neutralize each other and you're back at square one. Wow, I needed that for myself. I'm over here taking my on it. Really? So, um, I know you were saying like you have to have like this level of confidence, and you said you've been in rooms where there were people that didn't look like you, and you had to kind of readjust and refocus. So, what is one thing that kind of helped you build that level of confidence, especially like to someone that may not have like a a father figure or a mentor role in their life? Like what is some advice on breaking those mental barriers and getting over that 
that level of um, just feeling inferior, I would guess, I would say. Um, I think for me, uh, you know, these things are idiosyncratic. They're, uh, they're things that may work for you, may be meaningful for you, mm -hmm. uh, next person. Um, you know, those are things that you're going to have to figure out for yourself. Uh, for me, it was uh, recognizing who I was as a person, um, as a man, as a budding scholar, as a father, as a husband, um, as a Christian, um, but also, you know, at the forefront, the most observable part of my identity as a black male and being as unapologetic about being black as possible uh, and not code switching, uh, not changing who I was for anyone in the room. Uh, and so sometimes I would crack the joke that, hey, I'm a country boy. And so this professional accent goes away. Um, <laughs> uh, just deal with it. <laughs> because if I'm excited, it's likely to happen. Uh, you know, I'll talk about things that may make you uncomfortable because these are things that I've experienced. These are things that black men go through. You know, <laughs> I had real conversations with people around me. Uh, and I pushed back on ideas using uh, data and empirical evidence but also personal anecdotes, you know, and when people talk about, oh, um, you know, if you just comply, um, things will go the way that you want to go. And I have a look at them and say, not for me. You know, right. you know how many times I've been in, my father's an attorney, you know how many times I've been in handcuffs for no reason at all? I walked in my front door and was placed under arrest once because they wow. area at the wrong time. And I would have these conversations with colleagues and friends and they would all be shocked and they'd be like, no, no, not you. And I'm like, well, no one sees your PhD when you're walking around. They just see this black skin and mm -hmm. that's recognized. And so when I started, you know, having more candid conversations, um, I started expressing myself and not holding back and being very clear. Um, I recognized that a lot of the times the things that I was feeling, they weren't off. They, they were completely on target, you know. <laughs> There was, there was a, a self-validation that went on. Not that other people were validating me, but me being able to express these ideas and then walk through these ideas with the people and the scholars that were around me, I realized that, you know, I should have said this out loud a long time ago. There were some things that I was completely off about that I thought were, you know, these universal truths or I thought were these things that were holding my people down. Um, and I learned a lot more um, as I had more conversations because people aren't always willing to engage in the hard conversations. Uh, I, I talk about my blackness um, all the time, and I think that it's really important for me. Uh, my research has to do with black folks and code switching um, and suppressing your identity uh, and inclusion in the workplace. Uh, right now, I'm working with uh, two uh, doctoral students. I have two PhD students that are working with me on what we call the nth bind framework. And we're looking at uh, the stereotypes of black women in the workplace, um, Asian women and Latino women as well. I mean, just in women, women of color in general. And we're arguing that we understand that there's this double bind that all women face, uh, but there's this other piece that women of color face in the workplace that no one else faces. Um, and if we continue with, you know, feminism um, in the workplace that is centralized in Western European, just white woman feminism, there's a whole group of women that are left out. Uh, mm -hmm. Asian women being hypersexualized, Latino women, being hypersexualized, black women being treated as if they're angry. Uh, you know, these are things that they face uh, in the workplace that other folks don't face. You know, and so even though any woman can be the victim of sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace, the stereotypes walking through the door are different. And the way those stereotypes become heuristics for people and for interactions, those things are different. 
And, you know, when I started saying, okay, you know, large or black, what's most meaningful to you? You know, my family is really meaningful to me. Um, I started talking to my wife about, you know, how she's being treated at work and having conversations about, you know, like pay and things like that. And I started recognizing that some of the things that I want to research, my wife is experiencing, like depressed pay because she's a woman. Me guessing that, you know, it's probably also because she's a black woman. Me pushing her to negotiate hard. And I created a monster. She's like, <laughs> now, like, sometimes I'm like, all right, baby, you're being greedy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, me opening up and willing to share that piece of my identity uh, in the PhD program, that created a platform for me to, you know, just pursue these ideas, um, to dig into the literature, to learn more about me. Um, and hopefully to, uh, to push other people to open up and be as un unapologetic, you know, because no one apologizes for being white. No one yeah, does. Man. This, and this isn't, you know, this isn't a conversation that I'm trying to turn into like uh, us versus them. Yeah. We, you know, we have to be willing to express and identify with who we are uh, because that's the only way that we can be authentic. You know, if we're hiding aspects of our identity from people for whatever reason, if it's to protect them, if it's to protect ourselves, you know, what's the true quality of the relationship um, that, we're, that we're in? And so that was, you know, one thing that I really had to come to terms with and figure out how to navigate. Oh, wow. That's so powerful. Um, and one question came up. Somebody sent me an email wanting to do a podcast on the topic, can one be too successful? And I wanted to get your intake on that. Do you feel like we as humans, like we as black people, anybody, do you feel like there's too much success one can obtain? So give me the question one more time. I lost you for just a second. Can one be too successful? Do you feel like a person can be too successful to where it start affects them um, in a negative way? No, I don't. Um, I mean, you know, success is really a nebulous thing. Um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, and I hate to, you know, sound cliche, but success is really socially constructed. It's really how we go about, you know, operationalizing and looking at what success is for some people, um, having a chicken in the pot in the car in the driveway, you know, is success. Right. Um, and, and it can vary from person to person. And so, what we consider to be too successful for one person may not be the same thing for the next person. You know, when I, when my wife and I started dating, I made it very clear. I am a simple guy. I don't want to hold much of money. I just want to be able to support my family um, and just live a comfortable life and not have to worry about, you know, living check to check. You know, I don't need to make a million dollars. You know, her response was, I'm not trying to hear that. I need that million. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, she's super supportive but she still says stuff like that every now and then it's our little joke uh but that's what success looked like to me success looked like having a family um and raising a family you know um and doing more than just going to church on sunday really believing in god and you know working in the community and knowing my neighbors um and raising kids you know with my neighbors that's what success looked like to me and so if we're going to you know try to figure out what's too successful um I think we really need to consider uh, what's the problem that might be surrounding success. And, you know, is success creating other barriers? And if your success is creating barriers, uh, especially like in relationships, the people that you used to interact with, um, that's not the success's fault. Because you control quite a bit of that. And I, and I think that, you know, if, you know, you're going to places and the people that you grew up with, they can't come in 
and your success dictates that you have to leave them behind, uh, then you really want to consider, all right, is this something that's making me successful? Because if whatever I'm doing requires me to leave the people that I care about the most behind, I would never qualify that as success. No, that would, you'll never be happy because you can't enjoy no. with the people that you love. Exactly. Wow, I love it. So you say you have like some community involvement. Can you kind of share what you do for your community and how we can get involved? Because I know I want to get more involved in my community. I just haven't found the time to do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I do a couple things. Um, one of the things that's easiest for me is um, I'm part of the greatest fraternity in the world, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I moved to uh, the Detroit area, couple years ago um, I was living uh, we built a house in an area um, that doesn't have a lot of black families I think the uh, the population is about 3.8 percent black here uh, and I quickly found my fraternity brothers they were out here they were like hey let's charter a chapter you know let's charter a new chapter out here because we're all out here the closest chapter is almost an hour away uh, so besides everyone being tired of driving all that way for chapter meetings they were like we can do a lot of good in the um, and one of the biggest things we wanted to do is establish a strong black male presence um, in a community where our kids are going to school, they're walking around in these neighborhoods. And we want folks to know that there's a stronghold of black men um, that are supporting this community, and these are our children. And so if you know us, you know that these are our kids. So just to build some identity for our kids. Uh, and so we're doing, um, we're, we're in the early stages. We just charted that chapter in the very early stages. And so we're doing fundraising right now, but we've sponsored uh, two community events so far. Um, for a local baseball organization where uh, bringing out more of the black community in an area where they tend to like run to Detroit to do things. They don't do things in this area because they're always concerned with, well, no one looks like me over there. And so we're not gonna meet in large groups. And so we're trying to say, hey, you can meet close to home. Um, this community is inviting. And we're working in the community in that regard. Uh, we're also uh, working on some relationship with the local school district here so that we can set up some mentoring times, uh, meetings with uh, students, all students, uh, because we have a lot of guys that are really uh, in really professional careers, that own their own businesses, they're in really great trade industries, and so we want to bring some of that uh, influence to the schools so that the students can see that there's this group of folks out here that really care about you and anything that you want to do one day. Most of us probably have done it or we know someone we can connect you with. Uh, I'm also active in my church here, and so um, I serve as a church leader. I'm on the finance committee, strategic planning committee. Um, I do Sunday coordination. Um, training uh, and development stuff for our leadership as well as uh, for our membership. Um, I teach uh, the, the, um, the baptism course. Uh, I also teach uh, the course on the pre-orientation course. That we call it discovery. So if you're interested in becoming a member, um, but you want to know more about the church, I teach that uh, course as well. And then just about anything that the pastor calls me for and needs me to do, um, I do my best to do it. Um, at my university, uh, I'm a part of a couple of committees that are focused on supporting the campus community. Um, and so it's supporting diversity and inclusion for uh, teachers, uh, for the faculty members, other professors, for uh, the instructors, the adjuncts, um, as well as the staff and the students. So we can build a stronger community of diverse folks, look, at the, look closely at the issues that some of them are facing, like you know, ethnic harassment and discrimination, uh, sexual harassment and discrimination. Are there safe places on campus, like physically safe places on campus for people to walk around? Because we're in the we're in the heart of a major city, so that's always something to think about. 
Uh, fortunately, we're the safest uh, campus in the state of Michigan, even though we're in the heart of Detroit and everyone thinks, oh, Detroit's scary. Uh, Detroit is not as bad as folks make it seem. <laughs> they act like it's rough up there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a big city. So, you know, you get big city stuff that happens. But yeah. I've lived in Dallas. I've lived in Houston. Um, you know, you just navigate the places accordingly. Uh, but anything that can happen in uh, Dallas or Houston can happen in Detroit and vice versa. So, you know, uh, for us to have a major university here and be the safest campus in the state, that's something big. Um, and so I work on that committee. I work on the, um, I've done some work with the gender pay gap committee, focusing on uh, pay disparities uh, for women uh, in, uh, in, in academia, at least at our campus. And so we have an initiative to identify those pay disparities um, and then try to figure out a path to uh, make sure that women are being paid fairly. Um, and so even among the folks that study um, unequal pay, we're still seeing unequal pay. Uh, fortunately, we've had some forward thinking uh, administrators um, and, you know, our equal pay issues are, they just pale in comparison to some other places. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're not um, nearly as large of discrepancies as, you know, what they could be. Um, and that's because there's folks that have been working for uh, the better part of a decade to make sure that, you know, women are being paid fairly um, at the onset and throughout their careers. And so that's been a uh, really great for me. Um, now I also do stuff locally here in my subdivision. So we have a really active, you know, uh, subdivision and we have a planning committee and we throw small events here. Um, and so I work with the uh, block party committee and, uh, we throw an annual block party, bring all the kids out, all the families out and, um, we grill out. And so I work, uh, we, uh, we have like bounce houses and all those things. And so I do work, uh, in that area, uh, as well. And so, um, I think I covered most of the stuff that's going on right now, my wife would probably say there's more things that I'm forgetting, but uh, that's my community involvement right now. And that's amazing how you balance all of that out. So can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you if you want to be connected with, you know, everybody doesn't like to be connected with. Oh, no. Um, my website's under construction, so it's kind of bare right now, but you can uh, catch me at uh, lawrenceujohnson.com. Uh, also, uh, my email address is uh, LarsUJohnson at gmail.com. Um, also, my Twitter handle is at LarsUJohnson. And then I have a Facebook page, and it's backslash LarsUJohnson. LarsUJohnson. <laughs> so, yeah, I try, I try to keep it pretty simple. Right. I mean, um, no one really ever comes looking for me. My phone number's on uh, Facebook. No one calls me. <laughs> so. Wow, you have your phone number on Facebook? Yeah, because I wanted to see if people will call. No one calls. Uh, <laughs> I've seen other folks with their phone number on Facebook, and I've called them, and they were so happy to hear from me. 